Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Nishant Trivasta. Thanks, Ray. This is the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Welcome to episode 10 for season 11. Now, this episode was recorded on Saturday, the 27th of March, 2021, for release on the 14th of April. This episode is sponsored by the Big Headphones, and you know what that means. I'm Drew Freeman with my Discordian co-host, Nishant Shravasta. Thanks, Drew. Joining us in the episode today is Kate Houston, who is the Engineering Director at DuckDuckGo and an advisor at Glowforge, and has also contributed to the book Living by the Code. <laughs> Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I was really thrilled when I saw Glowforge because uh, I have a very close friend with a Glowforge. I'm assuming it's the the Glowforge, the, the CNC laser cutter etcher thing. Yeah, oh, I my. have one right there. It's right there. I can see it. If you haven't it's seen wonderful. this, you, you, we'll put this in the show notes. You have to look this up. It is a personal uh, CNC laser cutter etcher. You can cut wood. You can cut leather. Uh, etch leather. It's it's it, the thing's amazing. Yeah, it's really really fun. I love it. How do you wind up attached to them? Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm like Dan pinged me like ages ago, and he was like, "Hey, would you help me with this thing?" Um. I don't even remember what, but then I helped him, and then we just stayed in touch and like we're friends, and then um. When they were building out their team initially, I did a lot of their early technical interviews. And uh, as part of that, they made me an advisor. And, you know, like I helped them a lot at first, kind of building out their hiring process and like less and less over time. But, you know, like now it's like every so often either Dan or the VP will ping me and we'll, we'll have a chat and I just, you know, try to be helpful. But I love them and I love the product and like, yeah, it's just, it's an amazing opportunity and a great experience. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an amazing thing. I, 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 I wound up getting a 3D printer because my friend has the Glowforge and we wind up going back and forth on things. So just amazing. Yeah, it's really fun. I had the premium plan too, which like I actually really love because they give you a design each month and it's like really complex and like pushes me to make something and the April one I'm so excited about it's like a, a little like jukebox you know and you can put your phone in it and it works as like a speaker so um, I'm gonna make it for one of my friends because I think she'll love it and I'm gonna like spray paint it in like rose gold and copper it's gonna look beautiful I'm so excited oh that sounds wonderful um so my wife put together little medallions out of acrylic with the design she did because uh, they were able to etch the, the acrylic. So you have this sort of clear medallion with a symbol that looks almost like um, etched glass. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I got this fluorescent acrylic and I've been making these tiny fluorescent planters in like two-tone colors. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. I'm like, I know I'm doing well because people are like, hey, do you have an Etsy store? I'm like, no, no, like I'm an engineer. Like these are just for friends. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how you balance things. You have an engineer and then you get attached to an artist so that the artist can do the Etsy store and you can buy all the toys. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I did that was really fun is I am very into photography and I took a photo I, I had taken and I rendered it as a line drawing, cleaned it up a little bit, and then engraved it on a piece of wood. Oh. 
using that uh, Glowforge uh, CNC machine or? Uh... Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I did it on the Glowforge. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, actually, you know, you talked about making things with leather. I like, um, I wrote something in my own handwriting and I like turned it into a bracelet that I could just like wear on my yeah nice super customized product yeah it's so fun (laughs) (laughs) right but yeah it's just it's an amazing product um we'll put the note we'll we'll put it in the show notes it's just a lot of fun so obviously you are is um quarantining self uh yeah everybody's in the house i'm assuming you're working remotely right now yeah well i was always working remotely and in ireland we've been in this very intense lockdown for like three months where we're actually not allowed to leave a five kilometer radius five kilometer radius is the lockdown five yeah five kilometers Oh, geez. And people ask me if I've left the state in the United States. And that's that's miles and miles. Uh, Just the idea of it being five kilometers, I'd barely get across town. Yeah, it's pretty full on. You know, I go back and forth like I'm at peace with it. And I'm just like, ah, I'm so trapped. But, you know, mostly I've been been trying to be pretty chill about the whole thing, because what can you do, really? So let me ask you, what what is fun for you when you are not locked down and not doing tech? Oh, I used to travel a lot, man. And I would go to a lot of art galleries. Like, I love art galleries and, like, museums and exploring things. I love just, like, walking around cities and finding random things. Like, that's one of my favorite things to do. Um I just like, like, I really love hanging out with my friends, going to the theater. Like, I'm, like, very into, like, travel and culture. Like, the two things that have just been, like, off the table for the last year, really. Uh, that must be crazy. If you're down to five kilometers and you like to travel, that just maybe, that 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 would be maddening. You know, people were saying, like, Kate, how are you coping with this? But I've been, like, pretty fine. <laughs> We're pretty fine with that. Like, the five kilometer, when they shut the gyms, that's when I start to struggle. But, <laughs> you know... It's it's been, you know, an opportunity for me to explore Ireland. I used to joke that I only ever left Cork via the airport, you know, like I really hadn't seen any of Ireland. I still have not been to Dublin, you know, and I've lived here for three and a half years or something. Um, And, you know, we actually got to have a summer last summer and I... I like went and explored all these places that, you know, I hadn't got to before. So where are you originally from? Uh, the UK. But whereabouts? Oh, in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I'm from not London, from your for your American listeners. Um, for Europeans, I'm from a place called Leicester. Leicester. Okay. We, we have listeners from all over the world, and, and I, I, I love being able to, to, to let the other listeners go, oh, this person's from right near me and everything else. Let me dive into some of what, you're, what we're, we're doing here, and that is that our, our big boss, Ray Wenderlich, was reading through the book, Living by the Code, and he thought, these are really wonderfully cool people, and I love what they had to say, and I'd love to sit down at the bar with them and pick their minds a little more about some of what they had to say, and that's what we're hopefully going to do today. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful idea. You couldn't ask me anything. Well, one of the things that drew my attention was you were asked... um, if a good if a good manager comes naturally, and you said that natural to you means high charisma, and not necessarily the experiential things you need, and I was wondering how you uh, how you manage what made you equate that feeling of somebody being a natural to charisma. Oh, 
Um, so often when people say, you know what, honestly, I guess it was an observation I saw somebody make is that there was somebody, you know, on a team that I was working with and on every objective measure, that person was doing a poor job, you know, but, um, my boss kind of observed to me, he's like, oh yeah, he's a natural leader. And I'm like, say what now? Because his team is miserable. They're not delivering. Like, what do you mean by this? And actually when I kind of thought about it and dug into it, it's like this guy could own a room, you know, Mm -hmm. he could own a room and he could talk about what he was doing and, you know, make a good presentation about it. But actually, if you looked at like all the underlying metrics for how his team was doing, it was extremely poorly. Hmm. Okay, so then that basically said the soft skills need to be there as well. And the soft skills may not necessarily come in if you've got the charisma. I think sometimes people skate by on charisma, you know? Hmm. Well, I mean, in, in the in the business world, I think people skate by with a lot of things that you know shouldn't <laughs> happen. But that's true. But like, think about you know, think about interviewing, right? Um, and tech interviews are just like a minefield of conflicting opinions, right? But it's been shown and documented that the least biased way to do hiring is actually to ask for work samples. Mean, and the most biased way is to have unstructured interviews. Now, why is that? Like, what's a big v- variable there? Right, and charisma, I think, is one of the biggest. Right, along with your general bias factors. Right, like when you have somebody's work, you can evaluate it, you can set criteria, you can say, like, did they find these things? Is their architecture good on these objective, objective kind of criteria of like, is it testable? And if you just have a conversation with somebody. And be like, yeah, they seemed really knowledgeable, like da 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 da. But you know, you don't actually know what happens. It's very hard to compare two conversations. And somebody who interviews well may not like be somebody who works well, especially over a longer period of time. Hmm. So then you basically said that the, the the really good things in a manager are the combination of self awareness and humility. Mm-hmm. So how how do those rank for you and, and how do they actually appeal in your world? Yeah, so I think the self-awareness is really key because as you gain power, you get less and less meaningful feedback. And so you have to stop paying real attention to the implicit feedback and making sure that you're taking it on board um, because otherwise you just won't improve. Um, humility, I mean, I think again, like as you gain power, like your job scope, you know, it becomes bigger than what you can do by yourself. Right. And so like admitting that you can't do it all yourself is like a pretty important step in kind of starting to delegate it out to other people and support them in it. Right. Like the worst managers are the ones who think they can do everything themselves and then reluctantly accept they have to delegate a little bit and then micromanage mm-hmm. out of all the delegation and just make, you know, like they don't scale, right? And if you can be like humble about your own limitations as a human being, what you can take on, what you can't take on, then it just gives you a lot more space to let other people do things and sometimes they won't do it as well as you will do sometimes they will do it better than you will do and sometimes they'll just do it differently and you know accepting that that's the case is i think really really important to kind of scaling as a leader i think the the quote that you have in the book really is fantastic and that was humility means you have these conversations with the person not their ego and i i just thought that was a an amazing observation 
Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about coachability. I have a presentation I gave like late last year and and an article in Quartz and a, another one that I need to publish somewhere. Um, and, you know, like this is where self-awareness and humility come together, right? Because if somebody really needs to be seen a certain way, it's very, very hard to give that person feedback and help them grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you can let go of this like need to be seen in a certain way, you kind of free yourself from what in thanks for the feedback they talk about as identity feedback, right? And if no feedback is identity feedback, inherently you're much more open to receiving it. It's wonderful. Because we are talking about this uh, coachability thing, um, I have one question that I've actually heard from other people is also that um, as an engineering manager, people expect that um, that they will have some sort of like they, they they are basically being promoted say from an engineer or a developer or like some other position into an engineering manager post and they just get there because they have been stayed in this company for a longer period of time so sometimes they don't actually go through any coaching process or anything mm-hmm. so would you suggest or maybe maybe you can throw, uh, share your thoughts around like is this a, a good thing to do that they should they don't go through a coaching process and they d- directly jump into being an engineering manager or would be the other way around like they should go through coaching i mean there's different kinds of coaching right and so you know there's like training programs for new engineering managers which i think it's really important that people get some training like it is a different job um there's various ways that people might get that there's plenty of companies have in-house training programs um i love the lead devs programming i think they're fantastic and there's courses through that um you know dr go um, we, we work through like one of our VCs has a connection to someone and then we take this training with people who have the same investor, I guess. Um, and I think that's really helpful for people to kind of embrace that mindset of it is a different job and give them like a starting point to learn from, right? Um, if somebody has that interest and like has that care and has been a tech lead and has had a good manager, you know, it's like really possible they'll move into management and they'll do an adequate job, right? The bar in tech is very low. Um, but, you know, it's a question of like, how do you find that baseline? And then how do you do the continuous learning, right? And, you know, then in the continuous learning, there's plenty of books that are available. Again, the lead dev has great programming. Um, and, you know, ideally you have a manager who helps you, right? I've trained a lot of managers. It's a lot of work, but it's really, really rewarding seeing them kind of grow and helping them, their teams grow. Then, you know, there's this question of mentorship, right? Maybe your boss can give it you, maybe not. But I think it's healthy for us to uh, get what we need from multiple people, right? Like not expect everything from our manager, like that puts too much on them. And, you know, DuckDuckGo, we talk about you're the DOI of your career, which I love. I've always felt like I was the DOI of my career, right? And so I always had like, okay, my manager's giving me this, very variable. Um, And then I have various mentors, friends, people who I can turn to for whatever. And then for a long time, I've worked with a professional coach. And so for me, the professional coaching is really helpful because it is a place for somebody who just supports me, right? She's just there to help me be my best self. Um, I have continuity with her across various roles that I have been in. And it helps me, you know, to the earlier point about self-awareness and feedback, it helps me shorten my feedback loops and really learn from it. Let's move from coaching and mentorship into sponsorship. 
Because as you mentioned, you, you'd said that the bar is low, but as you and so many other people have discovered, when you're an engineer that's female, that's not necessarily always the easiest bar to, cr- to cross. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think sponsorship is really important. Um, and there's plenty of data that shows that under-indexed people, you know, particularly women, tend to be over-mentored and under-sponsored. They get all this advice, you know, but actually what people need to advance is they need opportunities and they need sometimes support to meet those opportunities, right? And I think it is, you know, the responsibility of people who have gained power to pass that power on in a more equitable manner, right? And to look for under-indexed people in your organization and try and sponsor them, which doesn't mean, you know, you're not sponsoring, you know, the the majority. But like sometimes I jo- I like to joke, you know, that white men don't have a word for sponsorship mm-hmm. because they just call it going to work. Very, very true. It's, it, it's. Yeah, I, until you you acknowledge that there's a problem, you're basically buried in your own privilege. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's true. But you know, like one of the ways that inequity has persisted, right, is that people want to help people who look like them. And sponsorship, I think the most important part of sponsorship is looking outside of that and like, how do you help the people who don't look like you? How do you help the people who don't look like who you see in senior leadership? Because the only way the numbers are going to change is if the distribution of power changes. So um, you mentioned uh, that uh, like people should obviously should be sponsoring uh, people, those who are not looking like you. So we are kind of like uh, leading towards uh, talking about why people actually are not doing this because there's gender bias Mm -hmm. and and things around this. And I I remember in the book, you mentioned something uh, like this is a super nice line. And I like this where you mentioned it said inclusion is not a noun, it's a verb. Um, How do you see this different? Differentiating the the shift, the, the actions in in tackling gender bias, like how how is this gonna be uh, something that people, if they start thinking mm-hmm. about in this direction, they can they can uh, start tackling the gender bias uh, as a whole. Yeah, so I think it's really important that we don't just talk about gender bias, but we also talk about racial bias, right? Like we've had all the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, there's you know recently been these this terrible you know like murders of like particularly Asian women and attacks of Asian women um, and just like like rampant racism right and, and very violent violent racism with with far-reaching consequences but you know one of the things that people like to say about diversity and inclusion is like people bring their whole selves to work right which is like okay kind of true um, and you can't set aside like structural inequity Right. Like people come to work with all the structural inequity that they've been experiencing. Right. And the the disparity in opportunity. Right. Um, So one of the things they found, like, I think in the 80s, right, like one of the biggest predictors of why women weren't getting into computing is because if there was a family computer and they there was a girl and a boy, the computer would be in the boys room. And so, like, it was starting really early, but then it was just perpetuated, right? It was perpetuated in the education system, in the way that universities treated women, right? You know, I remember when um, when I was in uni, we had to do a group course. And I watched at the end of the course in horror as, like, all the women were 
um, there was 10 women in the course, right? And out of a hundred and they divided up the teams and each team got a business student and a woman. Like, which meant that the, the girls went into this course like kind of inherently marginalized in it, right? And so then it kind of continues. And now, you know, somebody comes to work, they've had less opportunity, particularly along racial and gender lines. They are, have been, you know, historically often mistreated, right? Like, I think one of the strongest predictors for how women do in this industry is what their first job and their first manager is like, you know? And this is like, I have the data and the observations for women, but I very much expect it's not just limited to women, but to, to all under index minorities. And so, you know, like you have this team and you have people who have been systematically treated in equity and you need to start redressing that balance, right? Like treating people equally or going or treating everybody the same or going with like a majority vote does not result in changes to the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. So this is why stuff like use of language is really important, right? If you have a team of nine men and one woman and you take a vote, like who feels included if we say, hey, guys, and you say, oh, well, 90% of the team feels fine about it. So we're all good. Like that, that's not. Democracy <laughs> yeah. is four wolves and a lamb voting on dinner. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think, you know, when I talk about like inclusion is a verb, it's like, are you doing the work for the people on your team who have not historically been treated as well, who have not historically had the same opportunity and who may be experiencing disproportionate burdens like outside the workplace? And you point out that that people expect inclusion to be easy when in fact it's quite brutal it's it's it it forces us to look at ourselves and not and and not accept the world as we have seen it yeah and i i mean it's uncomfortable for people to confront their privilege sometimes right to say like oh i had more opportunity you know and then kind of there's a subtext there of like maybe i didn't earn what i had you know or earn what I have. Um, and like, I think that's where a lot of inclusion conversations get stuck because somebody's just in their feelings, right? And it's like, it's not about you, <laughs> you know? It's about how do we create more equity going forward? And how do we include people who have not been included and who may not expect to be included? So we have the problem, what steps can we take to help this problem, because I, I, I fully understand that concept of well, we take a vote on something, and you know, ten percent are the female voice. But mm -hmm. how how do we fix these things? Do you have any general ideas or steps that you've taken? Yeah, I mean, I think something should not be voted on, right? Like I use that example because it's obviously ridiculous, but you know, it's your job as a manager to set the tone for your team, right? And you know, I think the first step there is to really educate yourself on this and make sure that you're doing the work yourself. One of the ways that kind of structural inequity does get persisted, right, is that we have a majority white male group in power, right? And, you know, they have this first step of in their feelings. And then they have the second step of like, yeah, okay, I've got through my feelings and we should do some things. And where do they turn? They turn to the under-index people in their organizations and they find, say, a black woman and they say, hey, how do we do like racial equity here? Can you just, you know, and it's like you think you're taking a step forward, but you've actually taken a step back because now that woman does not have to just show up to work and do her 
job and be twice as good for half as much, you've given her a second job of being the like single voice of racial and gender inclusion for your organization. I think one of the things that that one step that I'm seeing more and more companies take is leveled uh, the the leveled playing field of salaries and positions where basically Mm -hmm. if you're hired in as a senior engineer, that salary is set. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who's being hired in at what. And if you are brought in as a junior engineer and move up to the senior engineer, you get that pay adjustment. Yeah. So I think salary equity and transparency is really important. Um, we have complete salary transparency at DuckDuckGo um, and absolute equity uh, geographically, modulo like some kind of employment situations in the U.S. versus elsewhere. But, you know, I know for the level I'm at, Everybody else at that level is getting compensated the same way. Um, And I think that's really important, right? But I actually think that equality, like, salary equity is important, but equity of opportunity is even more important because that actually is what affects your trajectory. So you're now at DuckDuckGo, which is, if Mm -hmm. I remember correctly, the Google that doesn't track you. Uh, so we like to call ourselves a privacy company. <laughs> I realize you, you probably don't want to throw the competition around as a... So do you do stuff other than searches then? We have uh, mobile applications. There are like search applications, but they also block tracking mm-hmm. on the border internet. Um, and we, yeah, we're doing a bunch of exciting things right now. It's like, it's a great time to be a DuckDuckGo. And you are development manager? Um, I'm uh, one of the engineering directors, and I focus on the native application space. Did you come into the company as an engineering director, or did you work up through positions? Yeah, I came in as an engineering director. So how was that interview process? Uh, <laughs> we do a lot of, think that Go does a lot of take-home assignments. Um, but, you know, this, the same was true at Automatic as well. Um, so, yeah, I did... Yeah, I did a leadership assignment and I did a technical assignment and then I I did a technical design assignment and then I did a um like a team structure or team like fixing team assignment. Mm-hmm. Like this fixing team assignment. Yeah. <laughs> that's my speciality, honestly. Like that's what I used to do. <laughs> Fix teams. I mean, that's that's the core core of the job. I would say that's that's mostly used. Yeah, I mean, it depends, right? Like, you know, I definitely had some like, you know, my first team at Automatic, I joined and I got this like disconnected non-team, you know, and like a year and a half later, it was one of the highest performing orgs in the company, right? And but it wasn't when I joined, right? And there was a lot of work to be done with that. You know, DuckDuckGo, like, you know, things were not super on the team, but they were okay. And we've been, you know, it's, it's, it's different when you're trying to make a good team great than when you're trying to make a disconnected non-team achieve base functioning. Oof. That, that, I was just going to say that sounds daunting. Yeah. You mentioned about uh, making the team productive. Uh, that's, uh, that's a very important point because uh, a lot of like these uh, engineering managers who are like upcoming engineering managers and they are like basically trying to learn mm-hmm. things. Um, they have this daunting task, as uh, Drew just mentioned, that making the team productive. <laughs> so even though like when we say it, it sounds easy, it's definitely not easy. So maybe would you like uh, throw some light on like what are the things that from your experience you would suggest that these engineering managers employ or use? 
use that would help them move towards productive teams? Yeah, so I have a whole talk on this, right? But like the premise of this talk is that everybody thinks their team is fine and you can't really measure it, right? And so actually, like what I think most makes most sense is it's much easier to measure progress than state. So like, okay, you think your team is fine, whatever, let's say it's fine. How do you make it better, right? And then how do you measure that progress over time on like whatever metrics you particularly care about or like seem particularly lacking? Metrics are great because that is at least a way to give that report to say, see, there has been progress. Yeah, I mean, metrics, especially in terms of team health, right? Are like meaningless as a measure of state, right? So like, you know, if you're using story points to measure the state of your team, then you can say the team is better now, but you just gave every every story double the points, right? Mm. But if you, you know, if you keep everything the same, you say, all right, currently our story points are X, and you start thinking about, like, how do we get more done? How do we unblock each other faster? How do we collaborate so that people get help faster? And then you're like, all right, well, now we're doing 25% more story points, you know? Like, that metric is meaningful. So... I have to turn that around now and ask because you came up with this beautiful term of something you don't like in the industry, and that's success porn. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. Can you describe what you mean by that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if we go back to what we talked about at the beginning, the like self-awareness and humility, humility, success porn is like the opposite of that, right? And I think it also relates to structural inequity, right? Because often what you find in success porn is like somebody who started on fourth base, hit a home run, saying, I did this home run because I was excellent. So basically, you don't want people resting on their laurels. No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think it's great to celebrate your own achievements, right? But I think it is not good to tell other people that the only reason why they haven't achieved things is because they didn't work as hard as you. Mm, okay. One of the things that you come across most in, in engineers, um, imposter syndrome. So we talk about the one person who hits a home run and feels like they're the best. Now we have to balance that with the engineers who are convinced that they aren't able to do what they're doing. How do you address mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of hate the term imposter syndrome because I feel like it's a term that has become used to pathologize women for insecurity. That's often a result of hostile environments you know i use it i use it on myself all the time sure but i think we need to differentiate between the way that imposter syndrome gets used as like you know somebody who has historically and systematically been told that they're inadequate because of mm. who they are then feeling insecure right and then i think imposter syndrome also gets used to just kind of be like any insecurity right like the first time I, so when I became a, a manager, I was managing mobile teams. And at some point I started managing my first non-mobile team, right? And like, did I have imposter syndrome or was that actually like a piece of the growth opportunity that I had never done that before and I didn't really know what I was doing and I had to figure it out, you know? Absolutely. And then I think there is like this third thread, but like it's actually much smaller than maybe it gets attributed to, which is like, you know, irrational insecurity, right? And then, you know, if I have anybody that I'm working with who, you know, seems underconfident, then that's something I'm going to talk to them about and work with them on and kind of help them build their confidence, whether it is like 
you're not in a hostile work environment anymore. So like people are not going to tell you whatever has been happening before or you know, it's fine if you feel insecure about this. It's new for you, and we're going to help you. So, what is the uh, so now? You because now that you mentioned that we shouldn't actually use this. What's the <laughs> alternative term? What do you use to to use? Uh, because I would uh, probably all our listeners would also want to know exactly what's the correct term they should be using. Um, that would make more sense. I would say that like there's a correct term or an incorrect term. I just think we should not overuse Im- imposter syndrome for the things that are not really mm-hmm. imposter syndrome. This is like a very feisty social justice episode. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like very spicy today. We're covering good good points. <laughs> it makes it fun. This is this is great. I'm uh, I find the social justice issues relevant. I mean, it is well. That's that's a, an understatement. I think it is essential at this point mm-hmm. that. In the workplace, the workers are equal in as much as what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's different threads to the inclusion problem in the industry, right? The first is just like a fundamental lack of empathy, right? Which we see in products causing kind of continued structural harm, right? The second is very few tech companies manage to meet their hiring goals, right? But they're not really looking to hire from 100% of the population. Like, you know, the structural inequity, the bias, the bad processes is like, you know, dramatically cut their um, hiring kind of pull down, right? And then the third is um, power and money, right? Like if you look at the, like so many tech companies today Mm -hmm. are in some way related to the PayPal mafia, right? Which you know, was a very homogenous group containing some very problematic people, right? And it just gets perpetuated. And to come back to my earlier comment, like things don't change until the balance of power changes. Like that's true at different levels when, within your organization, you know, but it is also true as an industry until the shape of VC changes and that that becomes more representative. Mm-hmm. We won't see the same diversity of companies that we really need to do to actually be a net positive in the world. Let's change gears for a moment. Not that this is not like the most important topic. Um, one of the questions that you're always tapped on in, in Living by the Code is some books that you read. And one of them, and your first one stood out to me, and that was leadership and self deception, getting out of the box. And you I said that, that this book. is this is like your number one book. What is it about that book that that is like your number one? Yeah, so I, I was recommended this book when I was interning at IBM, and you know our manager asked us to read it, and it is for me a fundamental book about leadership because. It is all about how you show up to other people and what you do with power and feedback and all of this kind of stuff, right? Like um, a lot of people talk, are talking now about radical candor. You know, for me, radical candor is like applied self-leadership and self-deception. You know, a lot of the... Um, oh, I'm reading a, another fantastic book right now on feedback. Um, a lot of these things, what they have in common is if you want to give somebody feedback, this may be hard feedback that they don't want to hear. If they can tell where you're coming from is wanting them to be successful, 
you'll be able to do so much more with it, right? And that for me is why it's foundational, right? Because you can learn whatever techniques you want, but if like fundamentally you're coming from a place of self-interest, you're not kind of putting the person first and kind of seeing them as a whole human being, it doesn't really matter what those techniques are, you're still going to get not the best reaction or not succeed. Similarly, if you're coming at somebody, you know, from this core place um, and in coactive coaching, we call it the client is capable, whole and resourceful, which I think is another way to see it. If you're coming to somebody from that place, it doesn't matter if you don't do it perfectly because they will still kind of see that you're trying to help them and your overall impact will be better. I love the fact that we've actually transcended beyond the concept of human resource and we're now emphasizing the human again in the workplace that it is important to treat them as a person, not just somebody who does the work. Mm-hmm. So your comment was that it really is a good way to avoid conflict. Yeah. So often in conflict, you find people are just talking past each other for whatever reason. And one of the things in leadership and self-deception is to try and really understand where the other person is coming from, right? And try and start talking to them as another human being um, and see if that gets you out of the conflict. Which is really hard to get nowadays, I would say, because um, I think everyone, uh, as you initially mentioned, have this like uh, the, the ego problem, which which doesn't let you do that, right? Like talk to the other person in a very human manner, connecting them and then doing the feedback stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it takes a lot of work, but, you know, I feel good that most of the time I manage to do it now. I worked really (laughs) hard at it though for a long time. The other thing I've been doing lately, my coach had me do this, was um, this program called PQ, Positive Intelligence. Um, And initially I was, I don't know, I read it. I'm like, oh, this is very American, you know. But uh, going through the program is like, you know, it's made me like a lot, a lot calmer, a lot less kind of reactive, you know, it's, um, and, you know, a lot of what he talks about is, you know, it's very fundamental, like it goes very well with the concepts in leadership and self-deception, for example. Would you recommend other people to also take this PIQ program? PQ, yes. PQ. Um, yeah, I like, I found it great. <laughs> I found it really good. My coach is very into it. She's putting a bunch of people through it right now. Um, it is also like really expensive. So <laughs> it depends what people, <laughs> what people are looking for. But yeah, I mean, I found it really valuable. Would some resource related to this be available, like which people can check out later on? Yeah, so there's a book, which is, you know, a normal book price. Um, And there's a bunch of uh, quizzes online that you can take to kind of assess your PQ. I read a particular post uh, that is on your blog, uh, kate.blog. We'll also put that into the show notes. Um, This one was titled, Remote Team Managers Can Learn a Lot from Open Source Communities. So when I read this, I I went through the whole post and everything. Like, I really liked the post. But maybe could you, like, summarize this whole as a key takeaway for our listeners? Thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. I think, you know, the core thing is to operate with transparency, put stuff in writing, and give people space and encouragement to contribute. It's very simple and it it works very well. Now, a lot of this is is 
wonderful, especially when your management is grasping on to all of this. I personally love to have you as a manager above me uh, because of all of this that you've done. But every now and then, how do you deal with being, how do you deal with failures as being a leader? Um, Yeah, I mean, if anybody would like to be managed by me, my team is hiring. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, like, I think failure is really fascinating. I am... I did a panel for the lead dev on this recently and, you know, I got four people that I really love and admire and made each of them prep a very thorough detailed case study on one of their failures. Um, and, you know, one of the things I wanted to do from that is like, firstly, get away from the kind of platitudes that I think undermine that kind of panel. But secondly, like normalize failure, right? Especially in people that you admire, like, I probably fail every week in some way as a manager, you know, but to come back to that concept of leadership and self-deception, right? If I am operating with my team in a space of integrity where they know that I truly care about them, it's much easier for them to kind of forgive me my failures and also tell me, you know, like you missed this thing or I didn't feel like that meeting went well. Um, And, you know, we covered like so many things in the panel. I'd really recommend that people watch it, but you know, I'll tell you one about my biggest failures as a manager, if you want. Um, and that is that I ended up doing two reorgs in a three-month period. Um, so we did a reorg, and then we hired faster than we expected and in a different geographic split than we expected. And then we had to do another reorg. And I wrote this complete mea culpa for the team. I was like, look, I'm so sorry. You know, this was my mistake. I'm not happy that we have to do the second reorg. But, you know, we knew it was going to come at some point. It's come sooner because these things happen that we didn't foresee. And I'm sorry, you know. And um, I went back to that post as I was like prepping. And like the comments were so kind, you know, just because I'd like admitted the mistake in public um, and been really honest about it and explained why. And it kind of, I think, allowed people to feel however they felt about it, right? Like they're like any anger, frustration, whatever was completely valid, right? Like it was not what I wanted to do, but also to kind of move forward as a team and kind of recognize that the reason why we were doing the second reorg kind of tied into one of our core values as a team that we wanted to really onboard people well and set them up for success. And we couldn't do that without doing the second reorg. As always, there's so much more in this that we could talk about, but we don't have enough time in the podcast. We only get about 45 minutes. Of course, if you don't want to hear, just hear the episode, but see it as well, we're going to be posting it to YouTube in just a few weeks. Uh, Kate, I really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, like, thank you for the fantastic questions. Oh, that's what that's what we're here for. We try to to come up with things that that make it fun and challenging. Thank you for enlightening us and the listeners, obviously, with all the experience that you have and all the nice um, points that you had to add. It's uh, I learned a lot in this episode for sure. Amazing. Thank you. If you want to find Kate online, you can find her on Twitter at Kate HSTN. That's C-A-T-E-H-S-T-N. Nishant can always be found anywhere on the internet at N-I-S Rules, R-U-L-Z. And I am Podcast Drew, D-R-U. We have two more episodes left in this season, and they are sort of two little special episodes. 
We've been asking all the questions, but no one's actually made us stand up for ourselves on this one. So this time we're going to open the bar to each other. On the next episode, I'm going to be on speaking about public speaking. That sounds a bit redundant and meta, but we've been talking about public speaking a lot with many of our guests. And I've uh, actually taken courses and done some public speaking. And we're going to take a deep dive and take a look at uh, some of the secrets behind it. Two weeks after that, Nishant is going to be talking. And if you have any questions that you have for Nishant and want him to talk about or have any questions before he does his episode, we want you to definitely email us at podcast at raywenderlich.com. But that is going to tie things up for this episode. Again, I really thank Kate and Nishant. I am Drew Freeman, and we will return to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.